curb some of this spending that's going on, you have to raise rates. How else are you going to curb it? And we have to stop giving away money. I, I didn't really understand the first stimulus to the extent of the money. Um, because we upped the ante. Why did we need to up the ante? What were people doing? They weren't going on vacations. I'm Ashley McFarlane, a nonprofit executive living in Duluth, Minnesota, and you are listening to the Vance Crow Podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad you're here. Today, we talk with my friend Todd Keske, who runs a chemical company here in St. Louis, Missouri, called Foam Supplies, Inc., Now, you may be asking yourself, why in the world would I find a conversation with a chemical manufacturer interesting? But very quickly in this conversation, you start to understand all of the inner workings, the chemicals that make up all the things that surround us. And Todd has a way of bringing up how this world got regulated, why people have this kind of intrinsic feeling that chemicals are bad, polluting the world. And we even talk about that concept that used to be something we heard about all the time, the hole in the ozone layer. After we talk about chemicals for a while, we talk about regulations that are created that make uh, companies larger and larger, and we end up talking about the World Bank and both of our experiences, mine working there and his as a consultant and contractor that uh, interacted with the organization. This is a topsy-turvy conversation, and I was so glad that Todd could come in and have it. Before we get to the interview, I want to talk about the introductions class that we just released publicly for you that want to get better at explaining who you are and what you do. So in the Articulate Ventures Network, I created a class to help people have the mental models to say, how long of a story should I tell? How do I describe who I am without overwhelming people with details? And what do I do if I don't fit neatly into a single category? Well, we cover all of these subjects in a one-hour class that will help you be able to explain who you are and what you do so that you're both memorable and approachable, so that afterwards people can come up and start a conversation with you and have the right people talking with you about things you're interested in. This is a class I'm really proud to put out there, so if you're interested in supporting the podcast and getting this class, go to store dot articulate dot ventures where you can pick this class up i'm really excited to have you check it out and now we're going to head to my interview with my man todd keske todd keske welcome to the podcast thank you so you are in an industry that is much maligned it's not quite the coal industry but people that are manufacturing chemicals are often kind of pushed out of the world so talk a little bit about the company that you run and your perspective on chemistry in the modern age Sure. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's a great comment. Uh, name of the company's foam supplies. Uh, we're a polyurethane chemical manufacturer. Uh, and in our industry, our industry has a lot of vernacular. Our trade has a lot of vernacular and it's just misunderstood. We're called a systems house is where we sit. So we buy raw materials from major chemical companies like Dow, BASF, um, formerly Bayer, but now Cavestro. I actually think they sold that off to buy Monsanto. And then we make um, we make a, a special sauce, so to speak, with the chemicals that we make. And then we sell them in our industry typically to OEMs. So OEMs? A, yeah, original equipment manufacturer. So uh, 
that was a term from business school and I think just uh, another form of vernacular. And uh, so people that will make uh, steering wheels, people that will make a refrigerator, people that will make a boat, that's an OEM versus say aftermarket type of products. But we also sell some products into aftermarket industries and I think about urethane and I think of like sanding, yeah, yeah, sanding down that a door people, and varnishing. Yeah. That's and, not that. Well, so those, those are, I would say kissing cousins, right? So urethanes is a small part of the large universe of plastics. So, um, we're a thermoset plastic. So we typically, most typically we take a, an A and a B and we mix them together and then poof out comes your product. So most people relate that to epoxies, which epoxies are also like kissing cousins of urethanes. We in fact can make epoxies ourselves. So it's, it's uh, isocyanate and polyol. You know, I mean, these are the kinds of things that everybody knows exist because you have all these things around you, but where they come from seems almost magical in the world. It, yeah, absolutely. And, but, and, and ours, though, even some people don't even realize they exist. So say spray foam. You roll the clock back 10 years and the awareness of spray foam for insulation in a house was just not that well known. And there were a few independent companies that were really pioneering that avenue, even still today. And I mean, last year in a COVID year, they had a 12% growth, which is substantial. They're a very small piece of the insulating pie. So they're still infant really in their, um, I guess in their growth, but even though they've been around for about 30, 40 years. They're just not well known. It strikes me that to run a chemical company in today's day and age, you know, I was with Monsanto, which was maligned for being large agriculture, but chemical companies, I mean, even just saying I run a chemical chemical company at like a dinner party would be like, oh, oh yeah, like, oh, yeah, the dirty, the dirty business and oh, the, the polluters of the world. Uh, but the reality is, is that our, my products or my company's products and then my customers' products as at least in the way life exists today are what are helping conserve things like energy. So for instance, um, we sell a lot of material to portable cooler manufacturers, right? Uh, these premium, you know, coolers that are near indestructible, right? Well, why they can keep ice for so many days is because they're well insulated. So a lot of times our product is the muscle behind the product that you actually buy. So, I mean, refrigeration is impossible without our product. It's impossible. Yet in the manufacturing world, on the commodity list, our product falls to the bottom as far as cost goes. When you say that it's because you're the outside exterior material for the refrigerator, you're not the Freon or anything like that, are you? Well, okay. So vernacular for you here, blowing agents, which is an awful name, like blowing agent. It almost sounds risque. Blowing agent is actually the expansion agent. It's the ingredient within the, our two products that makes the foam grow. 
right? So they call it a blowing agent. So Freon is a trade name. Um, I'm trying to remember. I believe it's Arkema's trade name. Okay. And so there was Freon 11, which is actually chlorofluorocarbon 11, right? So there were CFCs, Freon 11. That was the most notorious for, you know, putting a hole in the ozone layer, right? Which isn't necessarily true, but societally accepted type of knowledge that we have here. It's not necessarily accurate, but so many people believe it that that's what it is. So there was CFCs, HCFCs, HFCs, which is HFC 134A. Most That's what most homes and cars, that's what their air conditioning runs on. And then um, the move is to... Uh, HFOs and HCFOs, um, which are, and all, all those iterations are allegedly less damaging to the environment. Oh man, you just hit on something I think is super interesting, which is you said <laughs> it's not necessarily that it caused the hole in the ozone. Yeah. That to me is like one of those, um, everybody knows this is true and therefore it's not even a question. And I, CFCs, I remember that being yep. like, Ooh, those hairspray. are bad. Hairspray. Ooh, bad. Ooh, if you're right? doing hairspray. Ooh. So uh, I feel like I'm going to get struck by a bolt of lightning by asking you this, but like it wasn't causing a hole in the ozone there. Well, I'm not going to, no, I don't think it caused the hole. Did it exasperate the hole? Maybe, maybe not. We don't know that. And, um, Humans are not okay with, I don't know. So the idea that we can predict the weather a hundred years from now or how it was a hundred years before, right? But before we started actually taking readings like temperatures and so on and so forth, right? When we can't get it right 24 hours from now, it's absurd. And no one, no one wants to, it doesn't seem like, I don't want to say no one, but I'm speaking in generalities here. It doesn't seem like we want to slow down, take a breath and say, do we really know? And then we follow just this nonsense. Oh, it's global warming. It's this. Oh, wait, it's climate change. We allow, you know, our societal leaders, I don't, you know, I don't want to turn this political or anything. And it doesn't matter what continent you're on to just kind of dangle us along this path that they don't know anything about instead of just saying, you know, we don't know. And I think we can look at it differently. Um, you know, if I think it's harming, should I continue or should I try and find a different way? We don't necessarily have to know with absolute certainty everything to change our ways for the better. And so in this latest iteration of blowing agents or Freon, the energy required to make it is unlikely. It's, it's probably a net loss. The energy required to make it is high. It's not going to be made off solar. It's not going to be made off of um, hydro. It, you know, it's going to require coal electricity or nuclear and I'm totally fine with nuclear, but meaning that in your plants, you require to make this process happen where you make the chemical reaction happen. So you have Freon. It requires a huge, a big part of your costs are electricity. Yeah, oh, sure. Energy. Okay. Absolutely. And so how does this energy cost relate to whether or not it's, it's uh, I would say it's 
You know, I don't know that. I don't know that number. I will dig on that number because it's curious to me. It's it's enormous. I mean, uh, we were we we own most of our facil- facilities for a, a short period of time. Um, we were leasing a facility. Just business was expanding. We were getting into different polyurethanes that weren't necessarily our core. And we needed a place to jumpstart it. Um, well, the electricity bill was more than the rent by a lot. I want to say it was 11 to 15 grand a month for what I would consider a very small facility. And it's because the equipment that we use, it all takes 220 or 480, you know, three phase. I mean, it's, it's sucking up a lot of juice. And uh, as you think about things like CFCs being banned and your experience of being in the the chemical industry, where where does the energy come from to 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 get society to say that's the answer? Let's ban them. Let's go down this path. Well, I mean, why are we looking for silver bullet answers? Okay, it, I, I don't think that works in most things that we do. So for, let's take CFC eleven. Okay, the best insulating product on the market. Now, in most cases, it was contained. What do I mean by that? Until, meaning while the product was in use, let's just take a wall of a house or a wall of a refrigerator. While that foam is in that refrigerator, that CFC 11 isn't going to the atmosphere. It's contained. It's, it's between two impermeable facers. So, and that was proven by a government organization out of DC, AHAM, which is the Association for Home Appliance Manufacturers. That was proven when they went from past CFCs to a product called HCFC 141B, which uh, is probably in most refrigerators historically today. Um, And they proved that, but that science... Not well known. I mean, it's known within my small industry and it's not sexy, right? It's not a sexy story. So we don't like to push things that aren't, you know, polarizing. So unless it's polarizing, you know, hairspray, everybody understands hairspray, you know, whether you use it or not use it, you're you're familiar with it. But foam behind a refrigerator, most people don't even know it's there. Do you remember that uh, that thing that came out called the Story of Stuff? That was like a short little documentary, and it like it was one of the first things I ever saw that went truly viral. I I don't I do uh, remember hearing it, but I haven't I haven't got to that yet. I mean, I am certain that if you went and looked at this, you would say like, oh, these are all the topics. And the reason I'm so familiar with it is when I was working at Monsanto, you know, there was this huge push against GMOs, and I was constantly looking at. Why is it that the known answer by regular people is that GMOs are dangerous? Like, how is it that an idea spreads out into society and becomes so endemic that you the the actual like leverage has to be done that these are not dangerous because people know it as the truth? And I think the story of stuff is a really good example of how they 
were able to tell a story that made people feel like they had some hidden truth, some sure. like secret wisdom. And then if they hated things like refrigerators and the chemical companies behind them, then you were doing the right thing. Yeah, I, you know, I'm going to read that actually. That's going to, that's to the top of my list now because uh, you've really piqued my interest there. But, um, geez, uh, I mean, I don't know how it started. I, I'm kind of a cynic this way. I, I don't think it was, uh, I would bet it's nefarious in nature. Maybe not when we were, pushing CFCs to think about this a little bit. Actually, I'm just, it was nefarious in nature. So folklore, which I think is probably accurate. NASA was running into funding problems, sending up the shuttle. Probably one of the most amazing man-made things we've ever done, right? I mean, it's it is still to this day utterly amazing i mean we it was like school buses that we put up into you know space to do stuff it just it, it still blows my mind to this day well it was we, 60 years ago today it was actually is that was 60 right years ago today yeah oh, that the russians actually beat us to it right oh to, well but not on a shuttle? Well, to get a human being up into uh, what we consider space, sure. the Russians did that 60 years ago today. I was just reading about Is it. Is that morning. right? Yeah, that's right. I did right. not know that. I'm disappointed in myself that I don't know that, but I'm going to, yeah. So with uh, Yuri Gagarin? Was yeah, that, yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. So, um, uh, I lost NASA's my place running into, yeah, yeah. into funding. Running funding issues, right? How do you get people to fund it? How do you get taxpayer down? Oh, there's this hole in the ozone. How do we know it wasn't there to begin with? Where is the ozone hole exactly? You know, these are questions that really never come to the surface, if at all, right? And then because, and it's not, I'm not necessarily trying to cast doubt, but, you know, and... <laughs> In Reagan's words, you know, trust but verify. And so the ozone hole kind of stays around. I can't remember which pole it is. I want to say it's around. I, mean, I think it's the South, south Pole. I south Pole, right? Head. And it's it's like a lung for the earth. It opens and it closes. So it opens up in the summer, closes in the winter. And we know this. But most people don't know that. Why not? That's not a difficult concept to understand. It's not a difficult concept for people to say, oh, the ozone hole's over Antarctica. Not, I mean, most people think I walked outside. Oh, I got. I mean, I, it's really interesting even just to think about this because when I was probably, you know, third through the eighth grade, these would have been topics that I heard all the time. And, you know, one of the reasons you got a worse sunburn this year than you did last year was because we've depleted the ozone layer. And now I look back on it, I'm like, that's probably not true. Right. But it became received wisdom, right? It was that Correct. thing that it was a story that made sense to me. And actually, I was thinking about this. There's a book right there called Winning the Story Wars. And it's um, it's the... It's actually written from the activist perspective. This is about the guy that, that made a video called um, The Matrix, which was a faux video where they, where they took barnyard animals and they made cartoons out of them. 
And then the one barnyard animal was given a behind the scenes look. He got to take either the red pill or the blue pill. And when he when he finally discovered what was going on, he realized industrial agriculture is bad and you should be eating organic instead. And you think about that and you think, well, that's a silly story, right? That's not that big of a deal. It got two million views in like the first four hours it was out. Oh, sure. And that simple story then became the knowledge that everyone had. And I think one of the biggest difficulties that whether you're talking about ag or chemistry has is if they say something that's metaphorical or even wrong, no big deal, right? You just kind of blush it off. It's, it's part of a story. If you say it wrong though, somebody will sue you. Right. right? So, so the, the balance of honesty and truth is not on the side of the people that are producing things. You you have so much higher of a burden of proof than the other side. Oh, no question. Yeah. We I are think it's interesting. Yeah, I, I I I'm glad you said that. It, I'm gonna have to I'm gonna sit with that a while because it, it is like we have a guilty before and we have to prove ourselves innocent, which you know, we, we live in a country that's you're innocent until proven guilty. So I do it doesn't sit well with me. It probably gets the best of me more than I'd like to admit. Well, but, I think it's just natural, right? Like we love stories, right? The easiest oh, story yeah. for for the easiest thing for us to explain to another person is not facts. The easiest yeah. thing is to tell them stories. Story. Right? Yeah. And then you have the problem of the people producing things are typically not storytellers because they're they're doers, right? They're not right. talkers. That's right. Yeah, I'm more of a doer. So how did you get into the world of chemistry like this? So I'm not I'm not much of a chemist myself, although I'm uh, I'm fortunate enough to uh, have rubbed elbows with a lot of great chemists, and I work with I call it the Big Bang Theory. It's fun, right? I I mean we have Sheldon's and the whole thing, and it's great. Um, I, I was born into it. My dad got into it. Um, he worked for uh, the Olin Chemical Company. Kind of hit a glass ceiling just because he didn't have a college degree. So he went out on his own, became a uh, distributor for Olin. Really, he was buying their chemical and packaging it in smaller sizes that Olin had decided, we're not going to sell to companies that buy X amount and less. And then what happened is the Montreal Protocol came along and it said, we got to be done with CFCs. Well, typically when things like this occur, big companies start licking their chops. Oh, this is time for us to gain more market share. This is time for, you know, us to squash this company and that company and take it all. Because they have like regulatory capture? Uh, They have the might and typically they have more resources, including, um, you know, people, smart people. They, they get them quick. Uh, they don't maintain them. They don't treat them well. Some of our best people we got from big companies that they were just in, in some regards cast aside. I don't want to make it sound like it's that contentious, but you know, they hit the magical age of whatever it is, let's say 55, right? And they get put out to pasture and they're not done yet. And we've taken a handful of those uh, types of folks and they helped grow our company. When I uh, first got into the industry, you know, I, I, I had to work from the ground up. I mean, that was just the way it was going to be. 
Uh, and, but when I started finally making it to our trade organizations with my dad and his uh, team, it was just really obvious to me that there was just no mentorship. There was no succession planning. I mean, I was the youngest guy by a long shot. And, you know, then another 10 years passes and I'm looking around the same thing's happening. So fortunately for us, you know, we've grown. Um, we do have our own resources. And, you know, I, I recognize that. And I went out and I hired a bunch of young chemists. And I'd love to say that I did this with a plan. I just did it because I knew we needed it. And then fortunately, it happened to when the boil, uh, the, the barrel of oil cost went down. So we got a bunch of good candidates at cheap because the oil companies, as soon as, you know, the barrel of oil went from say 140 to 55, they were letting chemists go left and right. So, and then, so I have a pretty, I'd call them still young. They're really middle-aged chemists now that are helping. So they'll be with us a long time and then we'll have to go find more. Yeah, you were mentioning the Montreal Protocol, and yeah. I always find that those types of things, like people that are in the masses that are listening to, um, you know, people on the news say, "Hey, we need to put these new regulations on these corporations. We need to make sure that they are, you know, following all the rules." What they don't realize is, and I used to say this all the time to activists that were against um, companies like Monsanto: the more you protest, the more the companies will be like, "That's great." Do you want us to do four more years of testing? We'd be happy to do four more years of testing. <laughs> do you want more paperwork? We're, we're fine with that because they know that they can create a regulatory moat that makes it so no new entrants can ever come in, right? So if you're doing a GMO, oh. it takes you 10 years at $10 million a year just to go through the testing alone, which means you have to go through all this discovery and then have a $100 million and 10-year runway to be able to get your thing. To, so they just sit there, the big companies just sit there and pick off all the little people's innovations. Absolutely. Absolutely, they do. And the refrigerant, I mean, the chemical companies, uh, the one product, the the MDI, the isocyanate, I mean, I a lot of us refer to it as a cartel, right? They're, they're just a few of them, right? And... They've been slapped with uh, price fixing. Well, the blowing agent companies, that's an even smaller cartel, right? It Just a few of them. So, I mean, like what's happening right now is, you know, there's this deadline of 2022 to get out of certain HFCs for foam blowing. Foam blowing always goes first before refrigerants because, you know, it's a much smaller market. Now, if we really cared about taking care of this problem and we really believed in the problem why are we focusing on the smallest most insignificant part instead of the big juggernaut which is the refrigerant side and the place if they're accurate about it damaging the environment that's where it's really happening because it's the most likely for it to happen that doesn't refrigerants have many, many more years than foam manufacturers to use HCFCs, HFCs, and... And that, would you say largely because your trade organizations don't have the lobbying power to be like, whoa, 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 we, we should slow this down? Or how, what would you, you know, say? No, I, I don't think they have the moxie or the brains. I, they, I mean, this affects big companies too. So I mean, our competitors, my competitors are big chemical companies who I, you know, I'm not competing with 
uh, I would say companies our size. It is very much a very David and Goliath type of um, playground. Um, the major chemical companies have been, uh, you know, they bought most companies like my dad built decades ago and they, they don't seem to stop. So, I mean, we're very much alone in the, in the poor in place market. I mean, we're it. It's us, Dow, BASF. There you go. And that's, that's it. That's who we compete with. And so as you're doing competition right now is a weird uh, time in the world because it appears as though prices for uh, input costs are going way up. I know yep. lumber, I, th- I see gasoline prices going up. I'm sure this is going up. Uh, from Shipping a- I've costs. Not, I've everything. not heard a single person say uh, uh, there is anything going down in price. What's your experience with this? Everything's going up. Everything's going up. And well, and you know, some of that I think was avoidable. Uh, so the United States has been a net importer of isocyanate. That's, you know, one of the components and it's approximately 50% of it. We've been a net importer of isocyanates for probably a decade or better, right? I'm, I'm not too sure of that, but for a very, very, very long time. And what happens is the big chemical companies will say, we're going to put on more capacity. Okay, great. And they, and it, it just never seems to come on like they say it's going to come on, right? And so then, oh, is it really a net gain? They throw out big numbers, but who's, who's checking it really? So, you know, what it, we're, we're, we're bringing in more from China. Well, that's struggling because of all the ports. Then we have this unexpected weather in the Gulf, you know, because you know, it got colder this winter. I mean, they had, I, what I had heard was it's been a hundred years since some of those areas had frozen. I know nothing at all about this. This is to totally I'll, I'll send you some pictures because it's, it's, I, and I don't know why these pictures weren't on national news. I mean, you're talking about basically where we get the ingredients for our products. And I mean, there are companies as big as GM that are starving for chemical. I don't think they're going to be shut down two weeks. I think they're going to be shut down two months. Really? Yes. This is because they can't I mean, I, drill the oil out or because the, the ships that contain them can't get into port? The factories weren't running. They're physically shut down. I mean, there was a picture of uh, uh, all these pipes and widgets and what have you, and they were completely frozen over like it was a block of ice inside of them. Oh, you're right. talking about in Texas when they yeah. had the big ice storm. Yep. I see. Okay. Yeah. And so... It's like a domino effect of problems. And then to get from under, all the while, demand hasn't stopped at all. Zero. I mean, are we in a recession? Are we? I mean, I don't know. It's interesting because, I mean, if you keep throwing cash into the system, how would you be in a recession, right? Because people have money. I, I um, Just anecdotally, I had a friend telling me uh, that their family runs those little um, gambling machines oh. in, in, uh, in Illinois. Yeah. And normally those machines pull up something like $350 a week, you know, each one. I, probably more than that. But right. it was like... Yeah, like it was thousands that they were pulling out. And so that money went into the system and then was gambled right up. Yeah. I think that's happening everywhere. 
Right. Uh, you know, people stay at home. You're running out of stuff to do. You buy more stuff, whether you're doing it consciously or unconsciously or, you know, whatever. That's happening. The prices of it are going up because for every hundred containers that we're shipping in, there's only 40 going out. That imbalance itself is no one anticipated that. No one. Yeah, right now the so a good friend of mine, Dwayne Faber, he runs a dairy farm out in the on the West Coast, and he said it used to be that the dairy industry had a, a float that they could send dry milk to China, and this was like you know the it was really cheap to send it back because there were so like the containers were empty, so we right. just fill it up with this dry milk powder, no deadhead, and but now. It is, uh, there is so much demand for goods to come from China to the United States that they don't even wait to be able to load the, the dry milk powder up. They just leave it behind. It's not sure. worth it to them to bring that back into China. And that seems to me to be a problem. It is a problem. And I mean, where's, where's that toilet bowl going to end up, right? What, what are we going to do with all that stuff? We don't have a process for that. We're not going to be building cities out of shipping containers, I mean, that's a cool thing to do, right? Like, I don't know if you've seen that, where they, they take a shipping container that brought goods over and they make use out of it, right? I love that kind of stuff. Yeah, but it strikes me but as it's like not trying s- to make the type of art that you make out of beer cans right. in Africa, right? It's like, not, that's a novelty, but not a final solution. Right, it would wear off and, and not not enough people would sign up for it. If it were, they would, nah, I'm not going to live in a shipping container. Like, I don't care how you dress it up, right? <laughs> My wife would probably say, hell no, <laughs> no chance. So, And yeah. so are you guys having trouble uh, getting the goods that you need in to do your, to do your work? It's a daily grind. Daily da- grind? Daily. Because what is, and it's been happening. I don't want to say that it's never happened, but... It's daily where they'll say, okay, yes, we've confirmed your order. It's, you know, shipping. It'll be there on Wednesday. Wednesday shows up, nothing. Where is it? Oh, um, you know. And right now they're able to, um, there is a driver shortage as well. So, I mean, the, those are, these are things that we haven't looked at Uh I, it's got to be at least five years now where I got a uh, presentation from a very large chemical company, and they were looking at the average age of drivers. The average age of a driver five years ago was 55, and the average retirement age was 60. Well, we're here. And then these, you know, they don't have a new crew. They did nothing for succession planning. So people that are in the trucking industry are killing it right now. They are killing it. If they can get drivers. I've had uh, truck driving companies on here and they're saying, you know, we got to we got to go to jail to 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 wait outside the door for people they're, that want to come out. They're of getting what they want now. Enough of them have figured out. Well, so like we're having trouble getting chemical from Texas to Missouri. So we we have a um, a like manufacturing facility in Louisville, which is just north of Dallas, Texas. And drivers aren't wanting to just leave the state because there's enough business for them to do there. They can just keep getting jobs, keep getting jobs, keep getting jobs right in their own state to just to handle the backlog. Now that will tail off. But what what domino effect of problems happen while that's going on? 
So, it, you know, we we have um, my company has done a great job of investing in inline capacity. It's just something that we did. And what does that, that mean, inline capacity? So. When I go, so let's, uh, I'm trying to think of a good, I have more raw material capacity to then make my final product. So it would be like if I had my own 7-Eleven to fill up my car at my house, right? I just have a big gas tank and I fill it up all the time and then I draw off that gas tank until I fill it up again, right? And so, and we're still putting in capacity like you wouldn't believe. Um, I mean, at the moment, I'm like, this is not the time for us to pull back and reduce costs there. We're going to invest in even more capacity. So last month, we tripled our isocyanate capacity in our Texas facility. Right? So just so we could weather the storms, to smooth out that I have it, I don't have it. I have it, I don't have it. To say, I've got it, but you know the demand keeps going like this and I can kind of even out i can even out when i need it this is striking um how similar this is to agriculture right now yeah because they uh they hit the point where they were like we don't want to be beholden to the uh commodity brokers so we're going to build all of our own grain storage so you see all these if you drive throughout the united states in the rural areas you see way more grain bins (laughs) than you ever have before and I wonder if the same thing is going on with their fuel and uh, trying to keep stuff in in hand because it's expensive it. to keep it in hand. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, we want to turn inventory, right? We're far more profitable if we turn inventory. Uh, I mean, but right now, I mean, we can unfortunately, um, and you know, we like charging a fair price for our product, um, and we don't like gouging. There are people that right now. Not a lot of our customers, but the market. Oh, that's too much for that. And it's like, man, this is what it costs. You either want it or you don't want it. It's it's a pay to play right now. And that's very, I would say that's probably our biggest struggle because culturally that's against our DNA. We're like, hey, we got to make some money, but we're not trying to press or rape or this or that. And, you know, but right now they're getting it. You ever, have you tried to buy a car lately? Used car market, new car market, prices are all boat. Have you ever tried to buy a boat? Oh, I keep getting letter after letter about wanting to sell my uh, CRV, right? Like they're like, well, you know, uh, like I would say maybe once a week I get a letter to sell it. And uh, I think it's because there's just not inventory. And I have a buddy down in Oklahoma that told me he was told that if the car is not literally on the lot of the car dealership, they are not getting any new cars for more than six months. Oh, easy. Well, see, there you go. Six months. So that kind of doesn't fall in line with GMs. We're only going to be shut down two weeks. So what do you think? That, how I mean, do, how does this like play out? Two weeks, six months. You know, because I, I think, you know, my obvious answer is like, okay, well, we're going to watch inflation. But then there's other people that are like, oh, you don't have to worry about inflation. It's deflation. What do you think? You're you're in the game. Is it inflation or deflation that's coming? Yeah. I mean, that one's not hard for me. That's inflation. I mean, I, I think that we stress too much home loan rates, right? That's that's our seems to be our only variable for if there's inflation. But give me a break. What's the cost of not having a car? 
what's what happens when your lumber goes up four times four times yeah, and, we, and i mean literally overnight it's not like our salaries increased four times to go along with it i mean that that in itself is inflation i i don't know if our government is smart enough to know that do you think it goes wild do you see it as a wild inflation you know, I don't know because our, our, our political climate is so crazy, right? And they're the one, the Fed, they're, they're the ones that are going to set our rates. And, you know, you, there was a, you know, our, the presidential election, what have you, the past elections, that was like a death battle, right? It, or at least I felt like it was. I was like, this is ridiculous. And, and it still is. So, I mean, to curb it, you have to raise rates. To, to curb some of this spending that's going on, you have to raise rates. How else are you going to curb it? And we have to stop giving away money. I, I didn't really understand the first stimulus to the extent of the money. Um, because we upped the ante. Why did we need to up the ante? What were people doing? They weren't going on vacations. You know, what were they doing with the money? And I, I, will, I think history will show that not enough of it was saved and too much of it was spent, right? And there's just no such thing as a free lunch. Where is, I'll probably outlive it. Um, but certainly some generations will be paying for this. Well, it's interesting that in our culture, you know, we have this, if you save money in a savings account, you're a fool because <laughs> it will burn off to inflation, but it doesn't actually have to be that way, right? No. Like people forget that there was a time when you could have a CD and you could count on that CD. That's right. Bringing you a return on money. You That's would right. have, you would have an interest in, in saving money. And I remember when I was in graduate school and I was learning about China and they said one of China's biggest problems is that their savings rate is 50%. And so they have trouble getting their people to spend money. And I think, is that really that big of a problem? Because like the, like I understand that people are like, well, then prices might go down and then, and then what will you do? And you'll be in stagflation. But to me, the ability to be able to gain wealth and hold it without having to put it in unnecessary risk in order to not have it eaten to inflation seems like a really the 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 decision of a of a wise society i i would agree <laughs> uh that i mean that's interesting i i'm so we have a business in china as well i'm gonna have to ask them on what they're i've never asked this question before you know how they save money i mean my gut screams something that probably is going to sound silly but what are they going to spend it on when you go and you look at how they live, it's so vastly different from how we live, right? And the reality is there's a class system there. You're a have or a have not, which is most of the world, right? What most Americans don't know that or don't see that. It's definitely not talked about, right? And because it puts, oh, how could there possibly be a have and have not society? Well, having been... <laughs> globally traveled for a very long period of time. I mean, since I was eight, it's true. Even I didn't see it for a long time, but 
What are they going to spend it on? What are they allowed to spend it on? Like, has anybody thought about that? Like, maybe they don't have a choice. Does the government tell them that they have to save it? You know, I think there's an interesting thing that goes on with the haves and the have-nots in the United States versus like a place like China in that um, you're absolutely right that they have a, a class, a huge, like huge percentage of their people have nothing. But they also are in a system where um, you can raise up your standard of living rather dramatically in a way that like maybe isn't, it doesn't, it, this is going to seem a little counterintuitive, but I heard this, um, Tyler Cohen talking about this the other day, an economist, and he was saying, you know, the, the, in the United States, we think of ourselves as having the American dream. And in many ways we do, you can start a business, you can do all these things, but we also live in a certification society, right? Like one of the downsides to the way our corporate culture is, is the way that you avoid having, and this is my part, not his. Uh, so I don't want to put impute meaning on him. One of the ways that you, uh, a corporation, defends against uh, discrimination lawsuits is they say, well, we're going to pay you within a band depending on where your degree is from and how high of a degree you got. And so if you're from you know, this university and you have, you're right here, then this is your pay band and that way you don't get sued, right? So what we don't realize is we made this trans- transition into a certification society. Whereas in China, you have a, a very different system where certification is not the most important thing. They are hyper competitive in their schools. Uh-huh. Who can get in is based on what what tests you take. And right now in the United States, we're getting rid of standardized testing. So we're making it more of a certification society. Yeah, I, yes. Uh, I think there are a lot of things going on there. Um, they are very competitive. But culturally, also, they copy, or what we consider copy. And it's copy, and they know it. They know they're copying. You think so? Oh, 100%. Yeah. I mean, there's because they don't care. Yeah, they don't care. That's right. Yeah, it's the, yeah, and that's how I mean it, like from a morality standpoint. And yeah, they do know it's copying from that. Absolutely. And they just don't care. So it's, uh, it's hard to get. I would say ahead in that type of uh, spot. You have to, it is competitive. You have to be picked, but they also, they're rich Chinese families and they protect their families. Just like the class system does in Europe, right? You have to be born into a class system in Europe and you either are or you aren't broad brushing. But for the most part, it's the truth. And, you know, if, I think my the the only point that I'm making is that I, after having like I studied under a Chinese scholar, I spent mm-hmm. quite a bit of time like looking into China. I had never encountered the idea that you know one of the most wealthy men in the entire world, Jack Ma, when he was in his 20s, was teaching English and rode a bike. You know, he yeah. he was not the richest man in the world. He figured out a business plan that he could execute, and he raised up his standard of living. And the, if you look at that, and we if we look at you know, the Jeff Bezos of the world and say, look, the American dream is still alive here, you know, but then, but you say, well, it is, it's alive in other places as well. And that was something I had never grappled with. I do. Yeah. I, you know, our country was founded from those people, right. From others. And that Horatio Alger story didn't necessarily originate here, even if the story was best told here. 
oh, that's interesting. Right? It, it, we were talking about this earlier. It's, you know, what captivates people, what catches their attention. Um, you know, sometimes people will tell a story. Some people are storytellers and some aren't. And I'm, I, yes, that does happen there. I'm just saying in a, and I think we're trending in the, in the direction to where we're actually being a class system also. We're just not going to talk about it, right? And it's economical, really. It's socioeconomical. Um, I'll be quite honest. I want to make sure that my children fall on that right side. So I will basically do anything to, you know, to, to try and preserve their way of life. And that's kind of what happens in class type societies. It doesn't mean that there aren't. My dad was a Horatio Alger. You know, in a sense. He was in a ratio Alger, you mean rags some, to riches, you yeah. know? You know, I think most people so tell who Horatio Alger is. I don't think most people know. Well, I mean, it's just I you know, I haven't read the book. I just know it's a rags to riches story. Oh, this is very so my mentor was a Horatio Alger award winner. And oh, is that he, right? Like I knew nothing about it until our joint friend Travis Liebig started giving me these books uh, about the Horatio Alger story, which is basically he was. He is. Yeah, he was an He's orphan a Horatio and, he, Alger. and he raised himself up and then was able to be much more successful. If you like, I actually think the best children's books that are out there right now, my daughter will 100% hear read these books with me, are books like Only an Irish Boy, which is really a story about a kid that, yeah, the society doesn't want him. His, he's being raised by his mother because his dad's dead. And like, what what's the rich kid like versus what he's like and how not to develop a chip on his shoulder and not to turn himself into a victim. Right. Like that story needs to be told in the United States more than ever. Absolutely. But what are we doing with stories? We're taking them out. I mean, come on. Tom Sawyer doesn't have a place in Missouri schools. Are we kidding with this? I mean, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous the absurdities that our society allows. And I'm sure that's that's true most places. I think one of the best thing about banned books is like, that's a really good way to say, what book should I be reading? <laughs> exactly. It's like the, the first guy that gets banned from Facebook or Twitter, I'm like, ooh, I'm going to go look that Absolutely. up. Absolutely. What'd you do? Yeah. And generally speaking, not always, sometimes you find some crazy loons, but oftentimes you're like, hey, that's an idea that other people didn't want here. There's probably some power to that idea. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's just absurd to me that we ban books, uh, you know, over a, a word that might've been commonplace back then. And we're not, we don't hold ourselves responsible enough to be able to handle those types of things. Right. It's yeah. just, that's not us getting better. That's us getting dumber. I, and I think like we, our school system didn't do any service to, uh, Mark Twain. Uh, like when I was growing up, I remember being forced to read Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer. And I vaguely remember the stories. But just last month, I read um, a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, and <laughs> which is a Mark Twain book, and it is like phenomenal. I bet he describes inflation in a way that like anyone could understand it. He talks about the challenges of slavery and how terrible it is in a language that would make anybody that disagreed with him like look like a fool. Mm -hmm. And so to think that he was dropping the end bomb in those books in order to like denigrate a population, he was doing stuff that at the time was so heretical that like, I can't believe he did it. Like if you go read these books, you're like, man, I don't think right. you're supposed to say that stuff. You're it gonna... was risky for him to yeah. do it. Absolutely. And how do we lose sight of that? 
How do we lose sight of that? It's weird. It, it's just, you know, I'd, well, I mean, one of my favorite sayings is, you know, if we don't learn from our history, we're doomed. And I stress doomed to repeat it. And, you know, I know that there's, uh, you know, some minor controversy on who actually came up with that. Um, I learned it out of like Auschwitz and World War II. And, you know, if we don't learn from this, we're doomed to repeat it. See, and it feels like we're kind of on some of those same paths. I mean, what did the Nazis do? They got rid of certain books. Period. You know, I I, had, I mean, I read a very interesting thing about um, about Nazi Germany that I didn't know anything at all about. And so it turns out there's this, uh, you know, the the Weimar, and there's this very open culture going on in Germany before the rise of the Nazis. Sure. And part of that is this artistic culture, and they had just developed photographs. And photographs like now could become ubiquitous. So there's the this was the advent of pornography. Sure. And so the first books that the Nazis were going to ban were books of pornography. They were so you you brought in these people that had like fervent religious beliefs, and they started with a purpose of we're going to burn these books because they're photographing bad things. Porn, sure. You know, not not just like uh, two consenting adults, but with children, with all kinds of stuff. So they started off with this idea, and then it just, just went totally out of, out of control. But yeah. and then once they figured out like, oh, we can burn these ideas, and then we can make them so you're not allowed to have them. So I think that a lot of people get into the book burning or the book banning idea with like really good intents. And then all of a sudden that fire burns wildly out of control. Absolutely. I mean, we're being censored now and no one's saying, uh, <laughs> I was going to try and not curse, but no one's saying shit about it. We're censored on a daily basis and it's, that's crazy. In what way do you think we're censored? Well, I mean, not to be controversial, he's probably the most controversial person on the face of the earth right now, but taking uh, somebody off Twitter, if you don't like them, don't read them. I, I don't read all kinds of people I don't think I like, right? I'm, yeah, I, I heard the I, line I of, uh, if you can silence a king, then you are the king. Right. And that's spooky. Right. Like, and then you have this balance and, and I always have to like, say like, because my natural tendency is like, let everyone say whatever they want. Like I'm, I'm very much like, as long as you are not, um, you know, assaulting a person in some deep and, and, you know, terrifying way, let's let people say what they want. But then you have to wonder, um, well, they are a free company, right? They can do what they want. Yep. I don't want a baker to be told what he has to be. Bake, so should I be mad at Twitter that they can knock the president off? No, I don't think so. Um, I don't, I also don't think it's quite that simple. I mean, that's, uh, they're heavy influencers, right? And if that's the case, right, and they're a free company, then uh, at least in our electoral process, they have no place then because they're too biased. They're too biased and they're swaying. We, I don't think we as a society understand all the pros. and like, We're just learning social media and how it affects people. And, you know, what's wrong with just a good old-fashioned elect? You know, hey, here are the two candidates. I don't care where they come from. Here's the money. Each side gets the same. 
Each side gets to spend the same amount of money, no more, no less. And let's just have a decent debate and talk about it. But the reality is, is they shut people off when they want to influence their decisions. And they do it for gain at other people's expense. So, I mean, the rea- I, I, I mean, we're, wonder- we're traveling down a road where we're going to be like, you know, we're you're going to start charging people for air and you're going to start charging people for water. And I mean, it's a voice and news media really needs to think about this. I have a great disdain for news media these days because I don't see them as being objective at all. The whole point is for them to be objective, but no one wants to talk about that either. Are you being objective or are you not? Or am I buying elections or am I not? Um, I don't know whether Trump bought the first election or outsmarted him with his Twitter feeds or whatever. He lost the second one, you know, did that make it? It, it certainly those are the types of things that we that were spoken about. You know, I, I don't watch news anymore because I don't trust it. Um, I don't know. You know, I had a, I worked at the World Bank for a couple of years and that was really good for me because um you know, you look at this organization and it's like got this sterling reputation if you're from a particular point of view and they're kind of a cousin to the UN. And I was yep. just thinking, this is amazing. And then you get in there and I had a chance to sit in with the president and the managing directors and the sector directors. And you realize no one is actually running that. No, It is a, it is a group of people that are, are just like the weather. They are changing directions based on their own personal interests. Absolutely. And they all have little fiefdoms. And I have to wonder if that's what's going on with Twitter. Like, it's very easy for us to tell the story in our minds that Jack Dorsey runs that and that he could be saying, yes, do that or no, you can't. But he'd have to be getting into millions of yeah, lines. Yeah, of I, I don't think all. it's I don't think it's individuals like that. I think you, you might be onto something there. It'd be interesting to know. I mean, if I owned, birthed a company like that, I'd want to know that. Right. So they certainly can't claim that they don't, they aren't aware of the dynamic. So a Dorsey or a Zuckerberg are more aware than anybody about that kind of thing. And if that's true, they're not saying anything. Well, I I often wonder if those dudes are like, um, like they're being held hostage. Right, like everything <laughs> that they have, like right? don't say like, anything. Or- yeah, you get to be the figurehead. You get to be the guy that's in the top here. But by the way, if you don't like our, you know, I, I think there's the the left coast ideology that that we have here. Then everything that you are in charge of will be gone in an instant. And I mean, maybe I'm wrong, and I don't. I'm not making excuses for people that uh, you know that should be running things. But I can imagine that there are a lot of things. Like when I watch oh. Jack Dorsey on Joe Rogan's podcast, I don't see a man that is full of confidence and knows what's going on. I see a guy that looks like he's blinking out SOSs with his, uh, you know, well, <laughs> what's well, going on here? Like, what's yeah. get me out of here? Yeah, I mean, I you might be right there. I mean, who knows? Unfortunately, don't you think we should should know? Even if we're we don't have like in tune and very finite specific insight to that. Shouldn't we like know like in our gut? Oh no, it's shouldn't we want to know that our electoral process was, you know, has integrity to it. And although there might be a little phony baloney, it, it, it doesn't really affect the outcome of the election. 
right? I, I mean, in some way, I, like I've become somewhat cynical about media, <laughs> but not not just recently, but that like I was kind of fed a lie when I was younger, right? Just in the same way about that the what? CFC, that, because I used to think that news was started with this like sterling idea of I'm going to just tell you the truth, but it turns out. Almost all the newspapers that started in the United States were started by political parties. Yeah. And so, like, that's why you have the, you know, the press Democrat or you have, you know, the, like all of the major outlets were started by political bodies that ultimately figured out if I only sell to one side of the distribution that I'm leaving some market share behind. So they maybe widen it out and then start putting the sheen of our side is true. <laughs> But I think they've always been a sort of political machine yeah. and that that maybe is the thing that we needed to lose our our nostalgic sense of. Sure. But then, OK, I. That's interesting. And that was good knowledge to know um, why they're so political, because I don't think I knew that they were started by political parties. But that, that makes sense. Right. What are these what are these social media companies going to do, whether it be Facebook or I don't know, whatever? Who are they? Do you think those private people are they're beholden to something or somebody? Right. I think I think that the um, I think in five years, the concept of personal responsibility will include you are personally responsible for how you curate the the information, the news that you get. I sure hope so. And I think that it will come down to, um, you know, when we when blogs first came out, do you remember RSS streaming? Do you remember this? A concept? little bit, yeah. Right, where you really yeah, yeah. simple streaming. Can you put the RSS up in your yeah. email and see it come across? And, but, and that, be, that came out of Vogue, right? Like I'm like, ancient. <laughs> That, that became like this, like totally, um, you know, like antiquated way to get information because you had these things that could tell you the news, Facebook and Twitter and these. Yeah. But I think RSS streaming is going to come back in a very big way because I think that people are going to say, I don't want anyone else to determine whether or not I'm going to see this information. Right. And so I think email lists, like if you really care about some particular blogger or a podcaster, you should be on their email list and you should figure out RSS streaming. And ultimately, I think this is the long term, there will be um, appliances in your home that will be your own server where you do not, you don't use the servers of uh, like the collective companies. You're going to have, you're going to store your information in your own way. Wow. I mean, that's wild. That's a wild thought. I don't know that I, I'm pulling for you. I hope you're right. Well, I mean, I wish I didn't have to be right. I just don't, I can't imagine another way in which we would, you or I, like you, you've already said, I don't trust the news. I'm, you know, I don't like the they Facebook. They flat out lie. Right. So, so the question then becomes, if I believe that's true, then what is it that I, what, like, you know, my, my brother is always poking me like, okay, if something is true, then what does it change about your behavior? And so I thought about this a lot and I'm like, well, it would change my behavior enough to, change the way I get news, but I have to actually make it happen. It requires more work than logging into oh, Facebook. Yeah. I mean, yeah, of course. Yeah. What a, what a great question from your brother, but <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know that that's possible. It is so hard to know. And there's so much power and money at stake in that regard. I mean, did you know that the world bank was one of the, Biggest funders of changing blowing agents? Oh, I believe that, but tell me so more. Is, so is <laughs> the UN. Well, okay, so I used to, you know, part of my job, 
uh, you know, our, our, our green technology is called Ecomate. And basically the UN and World Bank set up these projects, right, to get Article 5 countries, A5 countries, which we would call third world, right? And basically every country outside of the U.S. and uh, Western EU is Article 5, right? So they get taxpayer money primarily from the U.S. taxpayer to basically phase out of products based on our technology. And so they pay them. But what happens is that if the project's approved, it's delayed if the if or ever paid at all and the consultants take home most of the money and they're just in bed with these lower level politicians at the world bank or the un i mean i got to witness it firsthand it's awful i'm i couldn't agree more man like it, i didn't know about that specific thing but at well the, that's a it's a tiny bit but i'm talking probably hundreds of millions of dollars i don't even want to know what like the the food and the water projects get because those are known to everybody who are the consultants for that oh i know them i went to school with them and and it is an um and like the thing that people don't understand about programs like the world bank and the un is if you think unelected bureaucrats are a problem with the usda and the fda there's no oversight at all of None. the World Bank. There are people running their own little countries, their own little gigs, and they're sitting in office, you know, 12, uh, 12B17C, you know, that's just a cubicle, and they are running multi-billion dollar programs, and there's no way for anyone to know what they're doing, to stop what they're doing, to stop the funneling of money from there to the, the consultants. Like it is good money. Oh, it's if you good can money. become a consultant for oh, the yeah. World Bank. Oh yeah. Well, what's weird is, uh, and I don't know where this stems from. On the you're turning me into like a crazy conspiracy <laughs> nut. I don't normally talk <laughs> about these things. My, you know, my dad was very in his team were they were very conspiracy, and I, I, I there are some aspects there. I mean, I got to see it. I think it's there. I just don't. I don't want to be that way. I don't. But you can't unsee things, and. uh I, the consultants in you know for the U.S. technology are they Americans? No, they're Europeans, rich Europeans that you know played their cards right and living in you know Indiana, getting all the money tax free. Oh, by yeah. the way, oh, yeah. if they lived in if they lived in their home country, it'd be taxed. So they live here and it's tax free. So. so what he's talking about is if you work for the World Bank or the UN as a bureaucrat or as one of their consultants under a certain contract, you do not have to pay income tax or any kind of tax. And it's actually generally sheltered from your other your home country, too. And That's so right. these people are making the, you know, whatever. Let's just say it's one hundred and twenty thousand dollars a year. But if you make one hundred twenty thousand dollars a year in the United States, you're only taking home sixty five thousand dollars a year. These people are making bank, oh. and no one is watching what they're doing. Zero. You don't even know that they're there. No. Yeah, there's no oversight, like you said. So I was I was bouncing around to these different because they pimp. You know, I was basically a hooker for like a 
technology hooker, so to speak. And I didn't know it till, you know, it was kind of too late. And, you know, yeah, these consultants pimp you out. Oh, well, there's a project here in, in Sao Paulo. Or, oh, there's a project here over in Marrakesh. Oh, there's a, there's a pro, and we're going to have a, we're going to have a conference and you're going to come speak and say stuff and tell people why they should have your technology and so on and so forth. So this is it. When did you wake up to the fact that you were a technology prostitute? Uh, well, uh, you know, good question. Cause you know, it, you know, looking back, I think to myself, man, why wasn't I onto this to be, to begin with? I will say it, it was a platform for us to, to compete with the major chemical companies, right? Because we were the only independent that actually had um, a product. And then uh, a very a smaller independent from Europe had something, um, some technology to speak of. Uh, probably halfway, halfway through, you know, so. It's amazing. Then, like, so to, to hear you talk, I wouldn't be surprised if they liked you because you were small. Because when I... So I went to the World Bank and worked there for a couple of years. Then I moved to St. Louis. And it was a couple of years later that I went to work at Monsanto. Mm -hmm. And out of all of the friendship networks that I had, U.S. Peace Corps, public radio, graduate school, out of all the people that hated me going to Monsanto the most, it was the people from the World Bank. They became absolutely incensed that I would go work for the this devil corporation. <laughs> and you're like, what? Where do you think your money comes from? Like, right. It's it, this, these large corporations, like all your food projects, all of this is coming from. But they they are they very much have an anti corporation, anti chemical. bent. Of course, of course, that fits in with their story, except that when your ethics come into line and they're not aligned with theirs, then they have a problem. And I would say, generally speaking, uh, privatized companies will go to further extents to die on the hill for their ethics than large companies. Interesting, right? It's well, they're more in tune with them. You know, I I don't I don't fault necessarily big companies. I mean, part of what, why or how they operate is because our government taxes them differently or not adequately or you know it's just not a good fit and i don't necessarily think there's anybody that's uh responsible for that singly um but that's the way it is so yeah i mean they do they did like our story um but they didn't like it enough to not get in the way of their money and to you know, everybody could have been a winner in that kind of thing if they just if they would have let their story actually play out. But the reality is, is they got hung up on just nonsense. And I think that's all a smoke and mirrors routine to just say, we'll take more money in another project so we can have this then debate about nothing and help nobody. I mean, Mexico, holy cow, you know, I mean, it it gives certain people and companies, a false sense of security. Oh, I've got this safety blanket of American and European technology, and I'll just be able to, you know, when that date comes, when 2022 comes, I'll just be able to flip the light switch. No, it doesn't work that way. You got to start changing now. So release the money now, but it doesn't happen that way. Or, or they stay in a product that, is again allegedly more damaging to the environment longer than they should. Um, 
towards the end, I started telling people, I said, listen, if you guys wait to start trying different technologies, and I would even say, look, don't just try mine, try my competitors, try this one, do those things. I said, if you wait too long, when time comes, we just won't be able to help everybody. And that's where we're at right now. That is basically what's going on. If you wait too long to transition, if you wait, and some of that is even happening in the United States, right? These HFOs, oh, we've we've got a HFO. It's past all the U.S. What's an surf- HFO? Uh, hydrofloral olefin. It's man-made. So I don't really think it's green. Um, costs, it costs a lot of money to make it, and it costs a lot of energy to make it and it causes a bad product predecessor to make it it takes a raw material that was deemed bad to begin with so anyway it's it's so uh to wrap up uh you know you were saying hey i don't i don't watch news anymore i'm done with that what do you do with the time time. you uh with the time you got back in your life by not watching news (laughs) i don't know that i got it back uh it, it certainly shifted i mean i at uh, this time in my life, I'm 48. Told you it was my birthday today. Super uh, happy, fun birthday, yeah, by the yeah, way. Yeah. I'm glad you I'm can do a podcast it. on your 48th. This that's is good. right. Yeah. Be interesting. I'll have to watch and be like, oh, man, you sound awful. What's wrong <laughs> with you? But um, I, I do read a lot. I don't get to read the things I like to read or want to read. It, it doesn't bother me because it's just that I see it as that's my state in life. So, um, what do you want to be reading? Things like this that I'm leaving for you. Uh, my wife, I, I went to her, uh, Nikki. Haley's. So what is this? Tell for the listeners. What sure. It- well, it's, uh, it's Nikki Haley's book, uh, with all due respect. And I was able to go to a, you know, a sit down with her and listen to her speak. And I mean, she is great. Th- that's why I wanted to give this to you. I didn't know if you, I'm surprised you haven't read it. No. So, you know, I have two daughters uh, out of my three kids. And so I'm thinking, who will be the first female president? And I'm looking for someone my daughters can look up to and respect. So, and I don't see that currently. Um, She's just got an interesting story. So I want you to have that because you are an influencer, even if you don't think you are. Well, thank you. It's, uh, I I love uh, getting books and I'm, I'm excited about that. What was the last good book you read? (laughs) <laughs> uh shit my dad says oh that is good <laughs> that's very it's yeah a very i mean it, it spoke to me that's it it was a good story of how you know interaction within my family went with my dad and me so it was it was a good book i mean i read it in two days but and that's been a while it's probably been at least a decade when i was traveling to un type conferences and you're on a long 15 hour flight and you know i could do that so Right now, it's email and standard operating procedures and, you know, stuff like that. Things to, or, you know, the industry of freight, what's going on here, what's what's the real due north, what's really going on. So, that's just the state of life I'm in right now. It'll pass. Well, that's uh, hopeful. I, I always think hope I can read more as uh, time goes on. So, hey... Thank you so much for uh, for stopping by. Thanks for having me. <laughs>